On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. But it's been a week where not long did we mark the anniversary of the collapse of the Northern Ireland executive. Paul Given resigned as First Minister uh, on the 2nd of February, I believe, last year. So it's now been 12 months without a functioning government in the North. But it's also been a week in which the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Harris, announced a long-awaited independent inquiry into the Ulmer bombing in 1998 and whether, in fact, the security services might have been able to do more to prevent it from happening had they acted on intelligence that was available to them at the time. We're joined on the line by Sinn Féin MP for Belfast North, John Finucane. John, first of all, uh, thank you for joining us this lunchtime on On The Record. Can you give us your initial reaction to this announcement by the British government of this long-awaited independent inquiry? Well, it's a hugely significant announcement. It represents... uh an achievement on behalf of the families who have campaigned for a very long period of time to secure this inquiry. And it is in response to a judgment in our own High Court in Belfast where it was declared that there has not been an investigation into the questions surrounding the OMA bombing, which meet the most basic legal and human rights standards. So given the fact, and and I'm repeating what I've heard family members say this week, given the fact that there are very strong allegations that not only was this attack known about, but this attack could have been preventable, that this attack perhaps was allowed to take place, then it is of huge importance, not just for the families, but for wider society, that all of these allegations are interrogated and examined. and, And that needs to happen in a very credible and thorough fashion. Um, people might be wondering why it has taken so long one of the reasons why it's taken so long is that it wasn't until recent years that that High Court ruling in Belfast did rule that there'd never been a satisfactory inquiry in the first place but why do you think overall it has taken 24 and a half years for the British government to sanction this? Well you're right the most recent court judgment uh, which ruled in favour of the families was in 2021 this announcement in the past number of days has been in response to that. Uh, It it has taken some time and and I suppose I can also talk from personal experience how frustrating that must be Mm. for the families. But I think that there is a wider point that whenever we are dealing with questions around the actions or inactions of the British security apparatus and state, then it does take families an awful long time to get any sort of satisfaction or response. But I do welcome the announcement this week, uh, and I do hope and trust that the inquiry itself will have very strong terms of reference, that it will be thorough, that it will be credible, that it will always enjoy the trust and confidence of the families themselves, because without sort of delving into cliches, but I do think that this is a case where justice needs to be done for the Oma families, but justice must also be seen to be done, I think, for wider society who share the concerns that the families have. You mentioned your own uh, personal experience of having to deal with uh, inquiries like this without wanting to put too fine a point in it. Just for the reminder of listeners, you are the son of Pat Finucane, who was killed in, in pretty apparent circumstances so many years ago. Um, can you surmise any legitimate reason why it might have taken the guts of 18 months uh, from this High Court ruling to this announcement by Chris Heaton-Harris, or is it entirely uh, a delay and deflection tactic to wait so long? Well, I, I, I'm probably not over the detail as much um, to... I suppose, completely diagnose the reason for that delay. But what I think I can say on a general basis is that when you are dealing with the British government around questions concerning the actions of their own uh, state actors, then 
families tend to have to wait a very long period of time. So I think the fact that there there has now been an announcement that there will be an inquiry is significant. Uh, I think the families themselves have articulated that relief, um, that significance themselves best earlier on this week. And as I say, what, what the British government must now do is ensure that the inquiry is allowed to conduct its work and to do so in a way that they do not interfere with. I mean, an inquiry itself must be independent. It must be credible. It must have all of the resources that an inquiry would need to get to the truth of the answers that are being placed before them. And, and it must always enjoy the confidence of the families themselves. Uh, Michal Martin has said in his capacity as Thonishton Foreign Affairs Minister in Dublin that the Irish state won't be found wanting in regards any cooperation with that inquiry. But by definition, I suppose, John, um, dissident Republicans don't recognise borders and there is a good case to be made that the inquiry now being organised by the UK should be matched by a similar one of similar standing uh, in coordination with that by the Dublin government. I think the importance for me is that the Irish government, as you have repeated the words of the Tornish, is not found want, and I think that's the significance. I, I was struck by the comments of Lord Savile earlier on this week in response to the announcement of the OMA inquiry. Uh, Lord Savile, who chaired the Bloody Sunday inquiry, which went to the heart of all of the circumstances around that terrible day in Derry, um, he, he did he did exercise some caution around joint inquiries in different jurisdictions. I think for me what the importance is is not necessarily focusing on joint inquiries, but focusing on some sort of mechanism or vehicle which ensures that where there are questions that only the Irish state and government can answer, that those answers are able to be put before and and ultimately put before an inquiry to the benefit of the families themselves. So I I think as as, as long as that flow of information, as long as that vehicle or device or whatever way um, uh, the chair of the inquiry thinks would be best, I think as long as that happens, that should, I would imagine, satisfy the families. Um, So I I don't think we necessarily need to focus on exactly what shape that needs to take at this stage. Um, This week marks the first anniversary of the resignation of Paul Given as First Minister. Northern Ireland hasn't had an executive since. Uh, Is there a case to be made that it might help to demonstrate the public's mood on this by going forward with that second election that Chris Eaton-Harris has continually tried to defer? Well, there is legislation that has been brought in by the British government to uh, essentially delay the election that, that was due to take place towards the end of last year. But people's focus at, at the present time is not necessarily on an election. People's focus is on the restoration of our assembly, of the executive. And without necessarily resorting to hyperbole, what we are dealing with here in the North in the absence of an executive is genuine life and death issues. I am quoting people from our health sector, for example, who will reference the fact that the absence of an executive to agree a budget, to have a health minister in place, will have an impact on on people's lives. And even this week, we see the example of legislation around organ donation, which is not able to pass Mm. simply because the DUP have chosen to boycott uh, our local assembly and election. In the, and in, boycott, in the instance of a budget, John, could that not be uh, implemented directly by Westminster so that there isn't any shortage of funding for health services? Well, I, I think if anybody wants to rely on a British government, uh, particularly a Tory government, to set a budget 
then they are setting themselves up for services being denied the very basic resources that, that we need. I mean, we are not immune to the mass strikes which we see uh, in Britain for public services. So even in the north, our teachers, our ambulance workers, our health workers, uh, our, you know, Public services across the board are being starved of resources, the conditions that they're having to work in. So what we need is local ministers being in the positions that they were elected to be in, taking the decisions that they were elected to take, and ensuring that the resources are there. So the the boycott that the, the DUP continue to support is only punishing ordinary workers and families here in the north. It is having no impact on the negotiations which they say they want to try and mm. um, influence. And I think it is ultimately a, a very futile and punitive action which is not having the results that they desire. See, they would probably say the same of the, the three-year suspension of the executive that was uh, that followed the resignation of Martin McGuinness in 2017 over the Cash for Ash inquiry. It took three years to get Stormont back running then, and those yeah, on the other I, would, would, would that say that Stormont was, was equally dysfunctional and that the North yeah, suffered I, just I, as much I, then. And I'm glad you raised that, because obviously, um, in, in the instance that we're talking about now, the DUP have walked out essentially because the consequences of their political actions around Brexit um, haven't met their own desired tests. Um, in relation to what had happened previously in 2017, there was a huge financial scandal. I mean, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds. But what is also the case is that we were ready to go back in um, within months, within the year of, of the executive um, collapsing. And it was the DUP who scuppered that deal. I mean, again, there needs to be a little bit of context set that this was around the time where the DUP were very confident because they held a position of power in Westminster and their political attention was set in London and it was not set in Belfast and they were more than happy for the executive not to be up and running for that length and period of time. And it is a matter of political and historical fact that we were ready to go back in and there was a deal that was on the table that ultimately the DUP walked away from. Okay. Um, obviously, we don't have someone from, from the DUP here to answer for that, so I'll let that one just go for the time being. Um, do you have concerns, though, John, in general, that if Stormont hasn't been functional for four years out of the last six and it seems that the DUP, whether you agree with them or not, are now very much stuck in this position of unless their tests are met, they won't be going back, that people will get very used to Stormont not functioning and that they will begin to wonder what was the value of Stormont all along? No, I don't, because you know sometimes you can speculate and wonder as to what is in the public's mind or, or, or what it is that they, that they want or what it is that they are thinking. But we have a very clear indication what the public want. We had an election last May where the people overwhelmingly um, voted for parties who would not place any issues around the protocol or issues between the British government and the European Union before the restoration of an executive and an assembly. Um, over two-thirds of the of the candidates uh, who were returned in that election would not place any preconditions in Stormont being up and running. That is a huge endorsement by the public and on the importance of having our assembly, mm. uh, of having our executive. But, so, but, but they are institutions that are built on cross-community assent and both sides buying in. It's pretty evident now from even one of the opinion polls conducted by the Belfast Telegraph last week, most unionists now, if given a referendum, wouldn't vote to adopt the Good Friday Agreement. They wouldn't vote to create power sharing. 
Well, I think there's a bit of a nuance in, in the poll that you are that you are citing. But what I would say is that when we talk about the crisis in our health service, and this really is a crisis, um, we have the worst statistics around our health service in, on these islands. Um, that doesn't discriminate as to who a person votes for. I mean, uh, this is really impacting. We are living within the midst of a cost of living crisis, which continues to bite and continues to really hurt and impact on families right across the board. So people recognise that there, that there should be no preconditions on ministers coming in to take the decisions that would alleviate and start to address the, 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 the conditions that I have described mm. and start to take those, those decisions that only a, a local minister sure. can but, take. But, and those decisions are, are very clear and, and you've made your, your position on that very articulately known, but there's another community here that have a different position to yours who think that the protocol and the things that arise from it are a constitutional threat to the status of Northern Ireland as part of the UK and they're not prepared to do business and most unionist voters appear to back that stance. Well, well, well. I would, I would respectfully disagree with the way in which you framed that question because I, I, I think, with respect, unionism is not a homogenous body, which would endorse the narrative which you have, which you have put forward there. Of course, I, I, I recognise that there are concerns around the implementation of the protocol, but if we, if we even take the Ulster Unionist Party as an example, they are a unionist party who would not place any preconditions around the outworking of negotiations between the British government and the European Union on the restoration of the Assembly. And even whenever you look and you delve into the data and the details of DUP voters themselves, they also recognise that the health service and the cost of living crisis is something that must be addressed. And on many occasions, they rank that higher than the protocol itself with regards to the important political issues that need to be addressed. So we are talking about a very small minority in the wider society of the North who would endorse the opinion that there shouldn't be the resumption of an assembly. But we mustn't be held hostage by that. I mean, wider society needs all of the services that I've talked about throughout the course of my conversation mm. with you. And, and wider society recognises, and this isn't just a Sinn Féin position, I mean, this is a position that's endorsed by the SDLP, by the Alliance Party, by the Ulster Unionist and other um, smaller parties as mm -hmm. well. So this is about parties being having the ability to work together. Uh, and that is something that we are very much focused on and I think is always articulated best by our First Minister-designate Michelle O'Neill. Okay, we will leave it there. John Finucane, thank you for joining us this lunchtime. That's John Finucane, the Sinn Féin MP for Belfast North, uh, talking to us about the future of the Stormont Assembly and also about the anniversary of the uh, British government, rather, announcing uh, an investigation into the OMA bombing. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.